Hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Psalm 110. Let's start with a question. I wonder if you know the answer. What Old Testament passage is quoted in the New Testament more than any other? Do you know? Man, I was going to be disappointed. I already told you to turn there. And we talked about it at length last week. Psalm 110 is quoted in the New Testament more times than any other Old Testament passage, and that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. As you know, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark, and this sermon is a bit of an extension of that. Last week, we came to a passage, to a scene, to a teaching from Jesus that since last Sunday, I have not been able to shake. See, in Mark 12, we have Jesus in the temple just days before his death. He has the attention of a crowd. He's teaching them. And as he teaches them, he takes an opportunity to make an announcement. It's an announcement that came in the form of a question. Maybe you remember last week. It was a question that Jesus asked the crowd about the identity of the Messiah. And it was a question that was based on Psalm 110. And I'm not going to take us back through Mark 12, but here's the long and short of it. And here's the reason we're looking at Psalm 110 this morning. Because as Jesus stands in front of this crowd in the temple court, just a few days before his death, he makes an announcement. Now, subtle, yes, but an announcement nonetheless. He tells the crowd, Psalm 110, this psalm of David, it's about me. He doesn't say it directly. There's no way to deny it, though. Psalm 110 is about Jesus, and Jesus makes that announcement. Why is that significant? It's really significant because of what Psalm 110 says. See, Psalm 110 is about a king who will be exalted to the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110 is about a king who will have complete and sovereign rule. A king who will lead his people in victory, who will defeat all his enemies. But that's not all. Psalm 110 is about a king who is also a priest who will bring his people into the presence of God. So picture the scene from last week, Mark 12. Jesus in the temple court just days before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. And while the crowd may not fully understand what he's saying, Jesus has Psalm 110 in his mind. The psalm that says that he is the sovereign king who will save his people and defeat all enemies. It's an incredible announcement. Yet here's what I want us to consider this morning. We're going to walk through Psalm 110, and we're going to see that it's an announcement about who Jesus is. And it's also an announcement about the reason that we can have hope. This morning, my hope is that you'll see that Psalm 110 serves as a foundation 
for almost everything we believe in the New Testament. It tells us who Jesus is. It tells us where he is now. It tells us about the future. It tells us about his victory. And it tells us that it's through him that we can be brought into right standing with God. And David wrote it hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. This week I've spent a lot of time, actually for two weeks now, in Psalm 110. And I found it to be like a balm for my soul. And so I, fig- I thought it would be worth us pausing our, our walk through Mark so we could experience it together. My hope is that it will have the same impact on your heart that it has on mine. So we come to Psalm 110, you'll see just above it, most likely in your translation, that it's a Psalm of David. We can be sure of this because Jesus affirmed it. But didn't Jesus affirm something else about the, the author of Psalm 110? Do you remember last week? He said, it was written by David, how? In the Holy Spirit. So here we have David writing down a psalm, but he's writing the word of God. And what's fascinating about this psalm is that as we read it, it's almost as if we are hearing David, who was eavesdropping on a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. See, in the psalm, we have the Father telling the Son about his future. That he will be exalted, that he will have victory over all his enemies, that he will bring his kingdom. It tells us about the people who will be a part of that kingdom. So as we read the psalm, picture this. God the Father, God the Son, before time began in heaven, and the Father making these declarations to the Son, telling him about the work that he will do and the place that he will hold, and yes, the people that he will save. Psalm 110. I'll read it, and I hope that you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word. Hear the Word of God. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Then he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's true. And all these things will come to pass. I pray that God will use our time in Psalm 110 to give us assurance, to give us hope, and to give us a passion for the fame of the name of our King. Have you ever wondered... How Jesus, remember in Mark 12, this was like Tuesday of that week. 
Have you ever wondered how Jesus could go through that week knowing what he was about to face, knowing the rejection, knowing the pain, and yet keep walking? How could he knowingly walk towards his death? It's wild to think about. The writer of Hebrews actually gives us the answer. He says that Jesus went to the cross. He endured the suffering of the cross. Do you, do you, you remember what the writer of Hebrews says? For the joy set before him. See, Jesus knew what was on the other side of the cross, didn't he? He knew what he was going to accomplish. He knew that there's joy on the other side. He didn't go blindly. He knew what the cross would accomplish. And he knew in part because he's God. He also knew because Psalm 110 was about him. And he knew it. And he didn't just know it because all Jews know these scriptures, but because Psalm 110 is a record of what his father had told him and what he had sent him to do. Verse 1 is a declaration that came from the Father to the Son. We looked at this part last week, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. I won't give you the full explanation because we've already been here. But it does say Lord twice. And in Psalm 110, you see that one of them is capitalized and one of them is not. Same word in our language, but two different people, for lack of a better word. Yahweh, God the Father, says to my Lord. David says, my Lord. He's referring to Jesus. The Lord says to my Lord, and I hate to pick apart the translation so much, but there's Lord and Lord's not clear, and that word says, it's not strong enough. This is a declaration. Yahweh declares to God the Son. It's an announcement, it's a declaration. What does he proclaim? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. I do this every now and then. just want you to stop for a minute because, do you know this is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? Which means you've heard these words and these phrases a lot. Which means we could just go through them and assume we know what they mean. And you may. But even if you know what they mean, you probably haven't spent enough time considering their weight. They are familiar in their core to our faith. These are things that we confess when we say the Apostles' Creed together. Remember that section on Christ? The third day he rose again from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God Almighty. Why is that so significant? This idea that Jesus is sitting at the, the side of the Father. Why is that so significant that it made it into this concise statement of what we believe. We talk a lot about the cross. We talk a lot about the resurrection. We talk some about the ascension. Perhaps we don't talk enough about what's called the session of Christ. This idea that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's a place of both honor and authority. If I were to ask you the question, where is Jesus today? The answer is here, isn't it? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And this idea of sitting, it's, it's symbolic. It's an idea of work being completed. He accomplished the work that he was said to do, and now he has sat down. The work is done. He came to earth. He lived 
a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose in victory over sin, death, and hell. He ascended to heaven where he sat down. We're going to be in Hebrews a lot this morning. The writer to the Hebrews said, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Psalm 110 is a record of the father saying to the son, your work will be completed and then you will sit down. And it's not only important that he's seated, that his work is finished, but it's important where he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God Almighty. In this culture, to sit at the right hand of the king, this is a place of honor, a place of authority. And those aren't the same thing, right? To be in a place of honor is to be in a place to receive praise and to be exalted. A place of authority means that he has rule, he has dominion. So he's sitting there, but he's not sitting because he's resting. It's an act of sitting. He's exercising the rule and dominion and authority of the office into which he has sat. How does Paul describe it? You know Philippians 2, right? Walks us through the death, the resurrection. And then in verse 9 of chapter 2, Therefore God has exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This verse is about Psalm 110, this exaltation, this session of Christ, his seat in this place of honor and authority. Which means he's ruling and reigning now. And this could just be an exercise in fun theology. Or we could see it for what it should be, which is a source of incredible hope. Brothers and sisters, we know the one who sits on the throne. We have a relationship with the one who has all power and all dominion. Which means you don't have to fear. You don't have to be afraid. You can rest. It's hard, isn't it, when we watch the news and we see buildings falling down seemingly out of nowhere? And yet, even if you were in that building or you knew someone who was, we could rest because we know and believe we can trust the king who's over all. I wonder if you've ever, if you have a copy or if you've ever read any of the Treasury of David. It's a, a commentary set written by Charles Spurgeon on the Psalms. And if, if you want a great devotional, pick it up. Mine's a two-volume set. It looks great on a bookshelf. But even more than that, it is rich. And as I read the Psalms, I love to read devotionally through the words of Spurgeon. He says this, while we see our Lord and representative sitting in quiet expectancy, we as his people may also sit in an attitude of peaceful assurance and with confidence we can wait the outcome of all things. During this present interval through which we wait for his glorious appearing and visible kingdom, 
Jesus is in a place of power, and his dominion is in no jeopardy. Otherwise, he would not remain seated. I love this. He says this. He sits because all is safe. Therefore, there is no cause for alarm, whatever may happen in this world. We can keep our sight onwards towards the ultimate victory. I'm sorry Spurgeon isn't your preacher. There's a little taste of what it would be like. But consider that. He's sitting, he's ruling and reigning, which means we can rest, we can have peace, we can have assurance. We can rest because we know that he is over all, he sees all, he controls all. And he has a plan to make all things right. The sin you struggle with one day will be taken away. We can rest and have assurance that everything is not out of control. But maybe to hear me tell you he's reigning, he's ruling, he's overall, maybe that's confusing to you because you have watched the news and it doesn't seem like things as they are as they should be. Well, that brings us to the, the next part of that verse because we recognize that while he has all authority, he has not yet silenced or subdued his enemies, right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until there's still something coming, right? The work is completing, the victory is sure, the authority is complete. He has sat down at the right hand of the Father until the Father makes the enemies as a footstool for Christ. So we're in this in-between period, aren't we? The work is complete, but he hasn't returned. And we could think that's frustrating because he could make all things right and he hasn't. Or we can recognize that we are in a period of time that was full of grace. Because see, he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And guess what? We were born enemies of God. Which means that apart from Christ, we are the footstool. It's a kind way of saying you're going to be crushed by his feet. But we're in this time of grace where we know he's coming again. We know he will silence, subdue, and punish all his enemies. And yet we, as the church, know that through Christ, people can be transferred from the place of enemy to citizen. And so we have this chance to proclaim this message. Jesus rules over all. One day he will come back and he will judge all those who oppose him. And whether you know it or not, you were born in opposition to him. But through the work of Christ, you can be brought into relationship with him and you can be part of the kingdom, right? Citizen of the king who reigns over all. Scriptures are clear. God's wrath will be poured out. What we have in verse 1 is this announcement from God the Father to God the Son. A description of where Jesus is now and what's to come. Right now, he's sitting in a place of honor and authority, ruling and reigning. And his rule isn't necessarily visible to us yet, but one day it will be. A day is coming when 
all will see him, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. And I think we get a glimpse of that in verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. God the Father says to the Son, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, two, three, these verses, hard to understand. Um, and the primary question we have to answer is, is verse 2 about something that's going to happen or about something that has already happened? I fall firmly in the camp of both. Here's what I mean. The Bible is clear a day is coming when God will send Christ and his reign will become visible and he will subdue all his enemies. But even today, his rule is sure. God the Father has set him in his place. So this verse should give us hope both for the future and for today. Because God the Father has sent forth from Zion, from his, from his place, this mighty scepter. What's a mighty scepter? Well, think about, you have the picture of the stereotypical king in your mind, right? On his throne, crown on his head. He's got that big stick, right? It's the scepter of his authority. What does God say he's going to do with what he calls the mighty scepter? He's going to send it forth, right? Jesus is going to take that rod. And he's going to have rule over all things. He tells him, rule in the midst of your enemies. He's doing that now, although they're still allowed to remain. One day that rule will take a different form and it will go from mere oversight to punishment. So we read verse 2. I think we should do two things. First, we should have hope that a day is coming when the rule of the king will be visible and known to all. And that all of us who are his will reign with him. But until that day, I think we can rest. Knowing that he is in control even if we can't see him. You want Spurgeon to preach for just another minute? I'll invite him in. He says this. We look for the clear manifestation of his almighty power in those latter days. But in these waiting times, we rejoice. Because to the Lord, all power is given in heaven and on earth. We can't see it yet. But it's real. And one day, all will see. So we talk about the rule of the king overall. All authority, all rule, and I've hinted at it a lot. But that king is our king. The one who has called us into his kingdom. The one who has called us his own. And verse 3 talks about us the citizens of that kingdom. God the Father says to God the Son, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. You can go this week, you can read pages and pages on the symbolism of this verse. Not everyone agrees. Tell you what I think this verse tells us about us. Everyone knows, it agrees it's about us. The question is, is it future or is it now? I believe this verse is talking about a day that will come when Christ makes his rule visible. And when he returns, all believers of all history will rise and we will be with him, joined with our king. 
on that day when we all come together, we will be holy and sanctified. And our whole focus will be fully given to serving and following our king. I think that's what this verse describes. Look at it again. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. I think the day of the power is the day of his glorious return. And as we come to him, we're going to come in holy garments, fully sanctified. And it's going to happen suddenly. It says, out of the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This sudden awakening. Also, this idea of youth and vigor. Probably more here than I understand. But I do believe this verse is a description of resurrection day when we see our king and stand by him and he makes his rule known to all. And you may think of that kind of thing and think that's all crazy fantasy talk. But this is what we believe. That Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended to heaven. He is actually today, as we speak, seated at the right hand of the Father. One day he will return and we will be joined with him and we will be with our king forever. The king will appear, we will see him and we will be like him for we will see him as he is. That day is coming. I think verse 3 is about a day that's not yet happened. But it has to have implications for today. Think about this. If we look forward to that day and say, I'm going to stand with the king, and yet we live today as if he doesn't exist, we are inconsistent at best and hypocrites, perhaps. If we look forward to that day when we will stand and give all our allegiance to Christ, our king, should we not show that allegiance even today? The question is, are you living as a servant of the king? He is ruling and reigning today. If you're his, you are a part of his kingdom. Are you living as a loyal citizen? Are you giving yourself freely to his service? How do you show your allegiance to him in the way you use your days? Think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's a good reminder for us this morning that as we look forward to the visible reign of Jesus, we should live today in light of the fact that he is already reigning. Our allegiance to him cannot be reserved for later. As his people, we must live and acknowledge him today in worship and obedience and proclamation. Paul says in Colossians 3, if you've been raised with Christ, seat the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's one of those quotations of Psalm 110. Jesus is seated at the right hand and as those who are his, we should look to him acknowledging his reign. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, when he appears then you will also appear with him in glory. The day is coming when we will see him and we will be like him. Until then, we live today recognizing his reign and living in light of our allegiance to our king. 
It should motivate us. It should change us. It should enable us to live in hope and with joy. I just thought of the the phrase, I don't know what the future holds, but I know the one who holds the future. We know the one who reigns. We can rest. But we look forward to that day, and it's right for us to rejoice, but we also consider that our rejoicing is only part of what happens on that day. Remember the end of verse 1? Jesus reigns until his enemies are made a footstool. On that day, we as his people, we stand with him, we give our allegiance to him, but something else is going to happen. We see that judgment described in verses 5 and 6. You can have fun today deciding who the he's are. Is this God the Father? Is it God the Son? The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. My thoughts, since God is the one who put all enemies under the foot of Christ, I think it's God doing the work here. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. A lot of imagery. And I think what we read in verses 5 and 6 is both equal parts, horrifying and glorious. The reason I say it's horrifying is because it should cause us to tremble to think about the wrath of God being poured out on nations. This is unrelenting judgment on all who oppose him. God will punish his enemies. All who remain in their sin will be judged. In that sense, these verses describe something horrifying. But they also describe something glorious. Because not only is this the judgment of God, but it's the declaration of his victory. What's clear is that on that day, no one who opposes Christ will be able to stand, and that is horrifying and worth celebrating because we don't follow a king who can be defeated but the one who will defeat all who oppose him and so we can fast forward to revelation and the picture painted in revelation 19 john says i saw the heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw a beast and the king of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it a false prophet who in its presence had done the signs which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds gorged with their flesh. 
horrifying and glorious. This is the judgment of God. We have a king who will not be defeated. He will be victorious. And I think we see his victory in verse 7. After these verses of his judgment, we're told in verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This idea of a king who in the time of war wouldn't bend down to take a drink from the brook, but the war is over. And there is peace. And he's been victorious. So he drinks from the brook. And we're told at the end of the verse, his head is lifted up. Again, this idea of exaltation. That he is the one who receives all glory and all honor. He's the king of kings and lord of lords who defeats all his enemies. This is a psalm of victory. It's a psalm about our king. And Jesus stood in front of a group of people just a few days before they would kill him and says, that's me. I'm the king. Not in that many words. But that's not all this psalm is about. So we talk about Psalm 110 being the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The most quoted verse is, psalm, is verse 1. The second most quoted verse from Psalm 110 in the New Testament is verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, here's something you may know. If not, use it for Bible trivia. In, in, in this time, no king could also be a priest. God had set up a system in which they were separate. It's a separation of powers. No one person was both king and priest. When that was tried, it was not allowed. But we're told here that this king who's coming will also be a priest. And here's what I want you to consider. That if verse 4 isn't true of Christ, then there's not much comfort for us in verse 1. See, verse 1 gives us the hope that Jesus is king and he will subdue all his enemies. But verse 4 gives us the assurance that we can be accepted by the king. Up to this point, we've given attention to Christ as the victor who will defeat his enemies, but here's the rub. We were born as his enemies. All born as sinners, firmly in the camp of those who deserve the wrath of God. But thankfully, he did not only come as a conquering king, he came as the final and perfect priest. The one who can cleanse us and bring us into right standing with God. Verse 4 should be precious to us. Like verse 1, it's a conversation between the Father and the Son. The Lord makes this declaration to Christ. You'll be a priest forever. Now let's just step back for a minute and remember, what did priests do in the Old Testament? Well, priests were those who served as representatives between the people and God. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people to cover their sins. They interceded between the people and God. They prayed for the people in the presence of God. This was the system that God designed and he gave to his people. But it was temporary and it was never sufficient. Because human priests would serve faithfully, but their time was limited. They all died. 
And every priest who served was also a sinner, which means they had to offer sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. Every other priest was temporary and their sacrifices were never sufficient. But Jesus came and according to Psalm 110, he comes as a different kind of priest. A priest that will rule forever. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of this and probably couldn't in a whole series of sermons. But if you want a commentary on Psalm 110, verse 4, read the book of Hebrews, okay? And I'm going to read some parts of it for you this morning. We'll start in verse, or chapter 5 of Hebrews, starting verse 1. It says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And those priests, those human priests from the line of Aaron, they can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since they themselves are beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was. That's a description of the priests of the Old Testament. Verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So we see the contrast here between all other priests and this superior priest appointed by God, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's unlike them in many ways. His reign is eternal. Also, he doesn't come from the same line. Jesus was born in the line of David, right? He was born in the line of kings. The line of the priest was the line of Aaron. Jesus was appointed of the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to tell you the story of Melchizedek this morning. You can go and read it in Genesis. But what we're told here is that Jesus comes in of a different order, a higher order, a superior order to all the other priests. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 15 Consider the superiority of Christ, our priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. That's a lot of reading. But when you have a commentary in the scriptures of another part of the scriptures, it's worth reading. 
Jesus did not only come as the victorious king, and if that was the case, if he only came as the conquering king, we have no hope. But he also came as the perfect sacrifice and as the eternal priests, which means we, church, have an advocate before the Father. We can be accepted. We can have access. We have a mediator, one who intercedes for us. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If Jesus was only the victorious king, we're in a bad situation. But God declares Jesus both the great king and the great priest. And we can know that his reign will never cease and his priesthood will never end. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. There's more here. Read Hebrews this week. Psalm 110 is quoted in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament passage. Why? Well, I hope that you could answer that question a little bit, at least by now. So much of what we believe rests on the promises made by God to the Son in Psalm 110. We listen as the Father appoints Christ to these two positions king and priest. Because he is king, we have hope for the future. Because he is priest, we have assurance that we are in right standing with God. Psalm 110 is a massive meal. And I think we've just taken a bite of the appetizers. There's more here to be mined and believed. Let me close with this encouragement. Maybe you're like me. And at times, you can be tempted to worry and fear and anxiety over the condition of our world and what's to come. This passage reminds us that we have a king who is overall, who will never lose his authority and will return one day to declare his rule. And that's more than spiritual cliche. It should give us hope as we read the news and as we parent our kids as we face sickness and enter suffering. When you're tempted to worry and fear and anxiety over what's to come, remember there is a king who's on his throne. Maybe you're like me. And at times, you feel unworthy to enter the presence of God. You're slow to confess your sins. How could I come before God? Would he show mercy to me? Would he show grace to me? Friends, we have a priest who intercedes for us, who will take us into the throne room and to the throne. You can have access because we have a priest. You can know that your sins are forgiven and you are accepted by God. Christ is king. We have hope. Christ is a priest. We have assurance. We have access. 
which means we don't have to be afraid of what's to come. And as we have fears and doubts, we can come boldly before God with those. Consider Hebrews 10 as we close. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and because we have a great high priest who is over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. Friends, brothers, church, let us hold fast to this confession of hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The Lord declared he will be king. The Lord declared he is a priest forever. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And then let's look out and consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Have assurance for your soul and then look out and encourage others. He is king. He is priest. We have hope. We have assurance. And we need to come together to be reminded of these things. So no neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's be a people who find hope because Jesus is king. A people full of assurance because Jesus is our priest. And let's encourage one another to believe and to live in light of these realities.